So let me tell you a story. Uh, some of you who have been around for a long time, some of the old timers in our church will remember our dear friend Bob Hartley. Okay, some of you, the newer folks, you don't know who Bob Hartley is. Uh, Bob is an old friend of mine from way back, and he's, uh, Bob is a prophetic guy who ministers in the prophetic, but he's also just kind of a crazy guy. He's, Bob is a, uh, was a youth leader for many, many years, and he's, he's uh, hyper as hyper can be, and, and funny, and just a fun guy who loves the Lord, and, he, and he's great to be around. Um, Bob is my age. He's 58 years old, and he is still in incredible shape. He works out every day. When Bob was younger, though, in his 20s and 30s, he was one of these guys, Bob Hartley was a guy who, his muscles had muscles, okay? I mean, he was just, you know, he was just like, this is Bob Hartley walking in the room right now. Oh, yeah, baby, I got muscles. He was just very proud of that. Bob was a wrestler in college, and he was in Kansas, was a state champion wrestler, and was very proud in some ways, in a fun way, not in an arrogant way, but kind of a fun way of his, his masculinity and his muscles. Shortly after Bob uh, and his wife Terry were married, they were in their early 20s, they traveled to Zimbabwe, Africa to work on a, uh, a Christian co-op, a kind of a farm that was there, uh, just to serve as, as missionaries with this uh, organization. They were there for, uh, originally I think supposed to be there two years, because of some political unrest, they actually had to flee the country and, and leave earlier than that. But the story is this that I want to share with you today. While they were there... Uh, it was a farm, it was a working farm, and one of the tasks Bob had one day was to move some sand, move some sand from one location to another. They had a big pile of sand, and I, I don't know if they were amending soil or what they were doing, but it's old school, so you, you were talking shovels. So they're shoveling sand into a cart that's pulled by an ox, and then it will go to the other location and be dumped where they want it. That's his job for the day, is shoveling sand. So Bob is working, shoveling sand, alongside one of the farmers there who happened to be a Zimbabwean gentleman who was a couple of things. One, he was older than Bob. He was probably in his 40s. Bob's 25-ish. This guy's 40-something. The other thing is that this guy was very slender and slight, did not have one-third or one-quarter of the muscular uh, you know, bulk of Bob Hartley. So they're shoveling sand. And after a little while... Bob comes to the realization that his friend is moving more sand faster than he is. And the competitive nature of Bob Hartley begins to rise up. And he's not content with this situation. So he starts shoveling a little faster. And after a while, he's shoveling faster and faster and realizes that his friend is still moving more sand more rapidly than he is. So Bob Hartley goes into full-on overdrive Bob Hartley mode, and he begins to just pour it on. And he is shoveling sand with all his might. And after a brief time of that, he realizes that this aged little Zimbabwean is still moving more sand than him. So he does a very, and if you know him, you'll know this to be true, a very classic Bob Hartley thing. And he slams his shovel to the ground, and he says, How do you do that? And the other gentleman, who of course had no idea that there was any competition going on, 
says, do what? And Bob says, how do you move so much sand? How can you shovel that much sand that fast? And he says to him, it's my worship. Uh, Defining moment in Bob's life, and honestly in mine as he told me that story. Uh, So last week we talked about why we worship. And my heart, my hope, and I, I hope that I was able to give you what I believe is a accurate theological perspective of what really happens when we worship and why we worship. And we'll review that in a moment. But this morning, and this is really not a second message, it's part two of that message. My hope today and my prayer today is to be able to tie these two things together. Uh, and this morning I want to talk about a lifestyle of worship. So let, let's pray and then we'll, uh, I'll rapidly fire through this, okay? Father, Please uh, enlighten your word this morning, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to really receive all you have. We want to understand with our minds what happens in our hearts and our spirits uh, as, as we draw near to you, uh, that we might even be uh, able to draw closer and more near and be able to worship you uh, in everything that we are about in the course of life. Uh, so just uh, speak to us this morning. Amen. Quick review. We looked at Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. At His temple, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. And I basically gave you a a formula. Basically, we come into the presence of the Lord. Old Testament was in the temple. New Testament, where is that? Wherever you want to go. The presence of the Lord can be, He's with us. can be here in this room. can be in your car. can be at the park. can be in a home. can be at a school. presence of the Lord. Why do we come into the presence of the Lord? To gaze at the beauty of the Lord. David's purpose as he came to the temple was to see God. And when we begin to see the beauty of God, and we describe that as just something, and in creation we see the beauty of the Lord in many, many ways. In worship, in, in corporate worship, hopefully we see it in a, in a kind of a direct way, in creation and in people and in other things we see it in an indirect way. But as we gaze at anything beautiful, and especially the, the preeminent beauty of God, it causes joy to rise up on our hearts. And our praise and worship then is an outward explosion of that joy. And I gave you the illustration when you're at a, a concert and somebody plays, a band plays, it's really good, you, you applaud, you cheer. If you're at a sporting event and somebody does a, a touchdown pass, you cheer because there's joy exploding from what you saw. And the preeminence of God, the beauty of God is so great, we look at Him and you can't contain that. That's really uh, what worship is about and why we worship. Two other th- quick things I mentioned in that, s- ser- that sermon. Uh, in order for us to really enter in, worship is only worship to the degree that we are 100% engaged in the moment. So we lay aside, again, all we pray, I prayed it this morning, we lay aside uh, everything else and focus all of our attention on Him. And that's a choice. And that choice in and of itself is an act of worship. To say that you are important enough that I'm going to put aside all these other things that many of them probably really need to be taken care of and thought about. But for this moment in time, this 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever, this hour, I'm going to lay those aside and I'm going to give you my attention. And the last thing, 
it was a little encouragement from me to you, is that worship is all-encompassing, our whole person, and it involves not only our minds, our spirits, our hearts, but our bodies. And Scripture gives it, tells us to raise your hands, clap your hands, dance, shout, sing, lay down, stand up. Uh, and so move, 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 get up. Uh, so, so, you know, you guys sometimes are, uh, you guys are getting better at this. Uh, I want to see, you know, a little more of this. So uh, just a, it's a personal encouragement. Uh, freedom, freedom in worship. And uh, I won't go into it today. We, we don't want to hurt anybody, but we, we want to be free. So uh, the legend of Sword Boy lives on. Anyway, um, so let me, t- I want to transition into this morning. That process that we just described is absolutely certainly worship, right? It's worship. And it is a very, very important dynamic or dimension of our discipleship, of our Christian lives. Um, but it's not the whole picture. That's not all of it. We, we are called to worship God with our whole lives. And, and here's... I believe our Western mind, we are very rational thinking people, and we have a tendency to compartmentalize. And one of the things we compartmentalize very often is sacred and secular. This is sort of my sacred activity. This is religion. This is Christianity over here. I worship. Maybe I serve. I do Bible study. I pray. And then I go to work. I raise my kids. I do whatever I do. Uh, That's sort of secular activity. So we, we, we make those compartments, but also even within the sacred part, we sort of compartmentalize that. Worship is here. Service is here. Study is here. Devotion is here. I think that we need to take on a more holistic mindset and begin to look at our lives. Uh, Keith Green, when I was young, was a, most of you don't know him, but was a Christian musician, one of the very early Christian musicians, and he was just a passionate, he wasn't a worship leader per se, but he really was. And he, would, he had a song, he said, I make my life a prayer to you. And I think we make our lives an offering, a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. And everything we do fits into that category. When we're at home on Monday doing chores, we have a mindset that I'm doing this unto God and I'm worshiping Him. And when I'm at home group or when I'm at the office or when I'm at school, I'm worshiping God. When I'm with friends and family, I'm conscious and aware of His presence here right now and I'm looking for the beauty of Him and I'm experiencing joy in my heart at what He's doing in your life and that's worship. And all of those times in all of those places are opportunities to ascribe worth to the Lord and to give Him glory. We're encouraged towards this a number of times in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The issue here is kind of freedom in Christ. He's talking about, do you follow the law? Should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Do we drink? Do we not drink? What do we do? Paul's saying, you know, make a decision. Whatever, But whatever you decide... Whether, whichever way you go, however you choose to live your life, do it under the glory of God. Do, do, do it all under Him. And then in Colossians, totally different context, here he's talking about just living your life out unto Christ, but he says the same thing. Whatever you do, and here it's not eat or drink or whatever, but in word or deed, whatever you're doing, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do everything you do unto the Lord the verse that I really want us to focus on today and the one that we'll kind of keep coming back to is in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and in the previous chapter he had talked about the mercies of God, 
In light of that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Your bodies, Paul says, is not just your physical being. What he's really talking about is your, your, your person, your, everything that makes you you. Offer that to God as a living sacrifice. Now, here's the thing. We hear this, and we sort of hear it through one lens, right? But the truth is this. This was a shocking statement to the original audience. They would have heard this very differently than us, and this is the reason why. Because we don't really have a, a realistic concept of sacrifice in the context of our normal lives, right? Do any of you offer sacrifices regularly? Okay, I'm kind of glad to hear that. Generally speaking, in our culture today, if, we, if you hear something about someone offering sacrifices, it's not good. It's some creepy guys in the woods somewhere with dark cloaks and a missing cat. And it just, we, that's, it's not a good thing. I'm, I'm just, I'm serious. But here's the point. To Paul's audience then, Sacrifice would have been a very different thing. It was a reality in their lives. They would go to temple and offer sacrifices. And there was a sacrificial system that was a regular part of their lives. And so there were different sacrifices for different things. Some things you would offer a large sacrifice, a bull or an oxen. Other times a goat or a lamb. Uh, Sometimes a dove or a pigeon. There were different sacrifices. But there was one universal thing that was the same, that was true of every sacrifice. They were all dead, okay? When you offered an animal for sacrifice, uh, it was going to be dead. It was going to be killed. The priest was going to slit the animal's throat, drain the blood out of it, quarter it, and throw it on a fire and burn it. It's dead, completely, totally dead, no life. Paul says, offer yourselves, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. They would have gone, wait a minute. The idea of sacrifice is that you, you gave it all up. That, that, that little animal, maybe it wasn't their choice, but they gave everything they had. And Paul's saying, that's what I'm asking you for. It, it, as much as that sacrifice was given completely and totally over to the Lord, I want you to give your life completely and totally over to the Lord while you're alive, while you're living. You're a living sacrifice. Your whole life is to be given as an offering to God. And not only that, but it's holy, which simply means it's consecrated. It's set apart unto the Lord. Everything I do my entire life is to be set apart unto, the God, unto God and sacrificed on behalf of Him. Whatever I'm involved in day in and day out is a sacrifice to the Lord. And Paul says this... This is true and proper worship. Now, there, there are two different, uh, there, there are a few different words, but there are two primary Greek words that are translated into worship in English. And I think we can get a little bit of insight as to what this process looks like by looking at those two words. So we're going to do a little, little Greek study here this morning. Uh, the first word is, the English transliteration is latria. And, and it's it uh, there are there are and this is important. There are five occurrences of that Greek word translated as either worship or service in the New Testament, and it means simply service or worship. And they're very closely related to one another. So it's an idea of serving. 
But here's the thing. I, I put the um, verse from Joshua there because this Greek word is the equivalent to the Hebrew word, the Old Testament Hebrew word, that, that is translated as serve in Joshua 24.15, where, and, and you're, many of you will be familiar with this passage, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, if you don't like that, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors or the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living today. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there's two things we can take away from that. One is that this is a conscious decision. It's a choice we make. Uh, who are you going to serve? You know, Bobby D. Going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Who are you going to serve? The second thing is, this is not a one-time event. He's not saying, choose who you serve today or choose who you serve this afternoon or choose who you serve this week. No, which direction is your life going? You make a choice. My life is going one way or another. I'm going to serve somebody with everything I've got. That's what this verse is saying to us uh, when it's translated as worship or service in the New Testament. Now, the second word, if you think that was interesting, I won't sing this time. Sixty occurrences, 60 times in the New Testament, this Greek word is used and it's translated mostly worship, sometimes also as service, proskuneo. Meaning, I worship. But here's the thing. Proskuneo is a, uh, two words put together to make one word. The two words are pros, meaning to, towards, and kineo, meaning to kiss. Literally. The literal definition of the Greek word translated as worship in English means to turn towards and kiss. I'll never forget the first time I heard that. It's about, oh, a few years ago, 35, 38 years ago. And I remember Eddie Espinoza was a worship leader at the Anaheim Vineyard. And Donna and I were part of a little group, uh, a class, a school that was happening for people feeling pulled towards ministry. And Eddie was teaching a session on worship for us. And he came in. Eddie had a reputation as the weeping worship leader. He could barely get through a worship set on a Sunday without crying, you know. And so he's teaching this class. It's, it's like a Monday night, 9 o'clock, worst time in the world, you know. Everybody's like, God, please, let's go home. And he gets to this point of the thing, and he goes, to worship God is just to turn towards and kiss. And he stops, and he starts getting these tears in his eyes, and he's just standing there. And I'm like, this guy is thinking about the dynamic of intimacy with God and worshiping him. And it's breaking his heart. And I go, man, I want that. I want that. Whatever that is, that's what I want. Give me that. I, I'm going to... This week as I was preparing, I felt like God gave me insight into this. And I'm going to share it with you today. It's a little graphic. Just warning, warning. But I think It's profound how what happens when we worship God is so connected to what happens in the rest of our lives. So here's the thing. Let's just pretend or assume for a moment you're married. So when you're with your spouse, when you're with the one that you love, and you're being intimate and passionate, you kiss, right? You kiss. 
And think of that for a moment, if you would, as times of worship when we're in that place, and we've all been there, where it's so, God's presence is so real and so powerful. You turn towards and kiss. It's an intimate, passionate moment where you, you know, you're kissing the Lord. It, it's, it, I, lo- I love these other definitions here. It says, the basic meaning of proskuneo and the opinion of most scholars is to kiss Egyptian reliefs of worshipers going to temple. This is not Christian. This is just a, a, an out dynamic just in worship in general. They were blowing kisses to God. <coughs> I love this bottom definition here. Proskuneo has been described as the kissing ground between believers, the bride, and Christ, the heavenly bridegroom. While this is true, Proskuneo also suggests the willingness to make all the necessary physical gestures of obedience. So, when you're intimate and passionate with the person you love, you're kissing. Okay? Right? Do we do that? Okay. Now, question. Is that the only time you kiss? No. When else do you kiss? Well, maybe when you get up in the morning. Good morning, dear. You go to bed at night. Good night, dear. Uh, when you go to work in the morning, goodbye. When you come home from work. Uh, sometimes you might kiss for no good reason, right? Right? Walk in the kitchen, she's doing dishes, looks kind of cute in a little apron. Kiss. Hopefully, you kiss at various random times throughout the day and throughout the week, right? Right? Now, here's the thing. Let me, gentlemen, (laughs) I'm going to put this in some realistic terms here. If you don't do that, if you don't kiss in the morning and in the evening, just a little here and there, if you have no ongoing expression of affection and love throughout the week, it's going to diminish the meaning of what happens when you're being intimate and passionate and you kiss then, is it not? Is that not true? I would say, I would say at, at a given point, that becomes cheapened and illegitimate if you have no ongoing expression. They, go, they have to go together. One without the other doesn't mean as much as when they're connected. Are you following me? Is this making sense? Let me, let me I'll put it this way. I'm going to say this with humility, but let me say this. If you come on Sunday and you stand and raise your hands and sing praise the Lord and holy, 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 but you have no expression of, of affection or intimacy to the Lord throughout the week, at a given point, I believe that becomes hypocritical. Now, I'm not talking about one, one week, you have a bad week, right? And you need to come to worship just to get out of that bad week. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about as a pattern of a life, when you go on and on and you come to worship and you worship, but you don't have any expression of worship out there, I believe there's a point at which this is, becomes invalid. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot say, I'm going to come and be intimate and passionate and have no expression of love and adoration and affection to the Lord with the rest of my life. It just does not work. It's illegitimate. Our entire lives are to be given over to God as a sacrifice, a living, holy sacrifice. That is our true and proper worship. One last point. I I said worship is an outward expression of joy that, that comes from us being in God's presence and, and gazing on the beauty of Him, right? 
Okay, something else happens when we gaze at the beauty of the Lord. Something else very powerful happens. And we touched on this in our last series in the Beatitudes. Do you remember when I, we talked about blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God? Remember that? Here's the slide actually from that session. And my phrase, my, my one-liner was we become what we behold. What we, what we behold, what we look at, what we, is what we eventually become. Paul tells, or John tells us this in 1 John, dear friends, we are, now, now we're children of God. Remember, we're already children of God. We're in His presence. But what we will be has not yet been made known. We're not full, we're, we're, we are children of God, but we're not complete. We're not done yet. We're going to be something else. We know when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. Why will we be like Him? For we shall see Him as He is. So the more we see God now, the more we become like Him now. And when we see Him fully, we become like Him fully. We become like what we behold. You become like what you look like. So here's my last point. Worship is transformational. Worship is transformational. As we gaze at the beauty of the Lord in His presence, we become more like Him. We don't be, see, this is where the whole thing, man, the legalistic thing is just, ah, no, no. We don't become more like God by trying harder to be better. You, I'm going to tell you, you lose. Um, you become more like Him by looking at how beautiful He is and allowing His presence to transform your life from the inside out. As we gaze at the beauty of the Lord, we become more like Him. This is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says, and, and this, I love this verse, we all who with unveiled faces, he's comparing us to Moses who had a veil over his faces. We contemplate, and that's a horrible, there's no English word here, in parentheses, reflect the Lord's glory. But what he's saying is, it's like getting a sunburn. You look at the sun and it, it hits your face and then it reflects back, you, okay? You, become, you reflect the Lord's glory and we're being transformed into the image of the ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The more we see God, the more like Him we become. And then we looked at Romans 12.1, and now Romans 12.2 says, Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but what be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing of your mind is a big process, but a part of that process is certainly uh, looking at God in His presence and in His beauty and in His glory and allowing that to transform your life into His image. So my second one-liner for the day is you become like what you worship. I want to give you a passage real quickly to illustrate this and then we'll wrap it up and go to the park. Psalm 115, I love this. It's repeated in Psalm 136. They're exactly the same. Who do the nations say, where is their God? Why do the nations say, where is their God? The answer from the, what would be the church today says, our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him. The point there is that physically, you can't see him. Okay? They see their gods. You can't see our God, he's in heaven. Their gods you can see. Why can you see them? Because they're idols made by human hands. They're all around. They're little statues. And here's what he says about them. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They, they're, they're like a little animal, right? They have a mouth, but they don't, it doesn't work. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, they cannot hear. They have noses, they cannot smell. They're not real. They're inanimate objects. They look like real things, but they're not real things. They have hands, they can't feel. They have feet, they can't walk. They can't utter a sound with their throat. <coughs> 
and the punchline, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. If you worship, if you put your trust in those things, guess what? You become like what you worship. Now, let's just say, if you are worshiping the living God, that's good news. Because why? You get life. If you're worshiping something else that's not living, that's bad news. Because you become like what you worship. You lose life. Look, you can choose whatever you want to worship in this life. You you choose, people worship money. You want to worship money? Go for it. You can do it. Guess what you end up like? Ebenezer Scrooge, man. And I don't mean at the end of the story. I mean the beginning. You're a crotchety, cranky, lifeless guy. You know, you want to worship power? Worship power. Go for it. Do it. You know what the end game is? You become Hitler. You become Idi Amin. You become some kind of a megalomaniac who cares nothing about anything except the power that you have. But if you worship the one true living God who's gracious and compassionate and beautiful, then what happens is you become like him. Worship God. We have life. It comes into us. Here's the deal, guys. Lifestyle of worship. You become like what you worship. We have mouths, but we can speak. And we can speak words of life and truth and words of healing and words of encouragement and words of grace and words of of God's life to other people. We're not lifeless statues. We have the presence of God in us and we can speak. We have eyes, but we can see and we can see him and other people. And we see people as, as God sees them. And you look at somebody and, and you say, that person is of inestimable value. There's no way you can assign a value to that person because God says they're worth infinitely more than that. And I see them as he sees them. And at that point, I'm telling you, you don't see gender. You don't see race. You don't see age. You don't see any of that stuff anymore. You see the beauty of God in the hearts and lives of everyone around you, and it's unreal. It's totally, totally different than anything in the world. We have ears, but we can hear. We listen. We hear God's voice. We hear that still, small voice. We allow Him to guide and lead our steps and to direct the course of our lives day by day, moment by moment, wherever we go. We have hands and feet, but we can feel. We can walk. It's real. A lifestyle of worship is giving glory to God with everything you do, every act you do, every action, all your whole life is surrounded by God's presence when we, when we really begin to think and look and live this way. Paul says that, that, is, that is true and proper worship, to live that way. Okay, let's stand.